Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. Before we uh, dive into the sermon, I just want to say something real quick. That The song we just sang, Great Is Thy Faithfulness, um, is 100 years old. 1923, it was written. Um, 100 years old. And, and I was back there singing it and thinking about 100 years of people singing that song, you know, and that we join with them over a century of talking about the faithfulness of God and the work of Christ in our world. And, you know, it's uh, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, um, and I think about people like Dr. King, who, so driven by the love of Jesus, changed the world, right? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, that has worked and is working and continues to work and continues to change the world. And so I just wanted to, I, I was struck by that. And so maybe you're like, I don't care about that. Start preaching, but that's fine. <laughs> um, but I wanted to share it because I thought it was, I thought it was really beautiful. A hundred years of singing that song in faithfulness. Um, I'm going to say just a quick prayer and then we'll dive in. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these folks. Thank you for our church family. Um, I pray as Ava prayed um, that you would just lead me by your spirit as we open scripture, talk about who you are and who that means we are and how we are supposed to live and move in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I got my first tattoo when I was 19 years old. This is it right here. Uh, I don't know if you can, you can kind of see it there. Uh, I do still have it. The rumors are true. Tattoos are forever. Yes, permanent. Um, I know you probably can't see it very well, so I also brought some pictures from the day that I got it. Oh, gosh, wow. Look at that. Oh, my goodness. And then Amy, of course. She looks exactly the same. Um, I don't look the same. Uh, I look 50 years older than I did. So if you don't read Koine Greek, which I'm assuming is most of you, that's the language our Bible's New Testament was written in, my tattoo says Theristes, which means harvester. And it's from this somewhat obscure verse in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. It goes like this. Then he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So I decided to get this tattoo after feeling like God was leading me to become a pastor. Um, but in the Christian culture I was in when I was 19, pastoral ministry, it really meant something very different to me then than it does to me now. See, back then, I thought I was supposed to be a, a harvester, gathering up lost souls for God. I thought it was my job to save people. And this verse clearly says there aren't enough harvesters out there, right, working for God. And so I was going to be one of those elite few harvesters. But I want you to notice something. Nowhere in those two verses does the word harvester appear. In fact, nowhere in the entire Bible is the word harvester used to describe a person who is working on God's behalf. 
So aside from dealing with the obvious issue of having a Greek word tattooed on me that actually is not in the Bible verse that I was trying to memorialize, I also had to deal with the fact that maybe I'd misunderstood what God was actually calling me to, what my role is as a pastor, what our role is as followers of Jesus. See, Jesus isn't asking for harvesters in this verse. He's asking for workers. That's the word that's used. More specifically, the Greek word translated workers, both time in the passage is not theristes that's on my arm. It is ergetes, which means laborer or field tender, field tender. It's an agricultural term referring to someone who tends to gardens or to fields. Someone tasked with helping each and every plant develop its fullness and its flourishing. I see Kate nodding along as such a gardener, tender in our church. It's the exact same way Jesus uses the imagery of shepherds in scripture, ones who tend to their flock. Someone tasked with sacrificially loving, supporting, and caring for each and every animal. It took years, I'm not proud to say, but I began to understand that my call as a pastor and the call for every single follower of Jesus is not to save people. None of us have the power to do that anyway, right? We are called to sacrificially love people, to tend to them. We know this because Jesus spent his entire life on earth tending to people. He embodied what I call a posture of tenderness. Last Sunday, we started this new teaching series that you just saw the video about called Wholehearted Postures. And it's all about how we as Christians are supposed to show up in the world, the postures we are to choose to inhabit. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at postures Jesus demonstrated during his time on earth. Last week, we talked about faith. In the coming weeks, we'll talk about things like humility and inclusion, discernment, courage, and joy. But today we're talking about a posture of tenderness, a posture of tenderness. We're going back to Matthew chapter nine, my uh, tattoo verse in just a minute. But before we look at that passage, I want to show you all some pretty amazing things about the days leading up to the words we just read in Matthew 9, 37 from Jesus. So Matthew's five, Matthew chapters five through seven record Jesus's most famous time of teaching. Does anybody know what that's called? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most famous time of teaching, Matthew 5 through 7, it's recorded in the other Gospels a few times as well. The Sermon on the Mount. If you've never read it, it's basically like this beautiful manifesto on what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to pursue bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And during the sermon, Jesus turns a lot of traditional religious teachings kind of on their head. And see, in a world where the rich and powerful were considered blessed, Jesus starts off the Sermon on the Mount by claiming that the poor, the persecuted, the meek, and the merciful are actually the blessed ones. He goes on to employ the phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you numerous times. And by doing this, he is kind of deconstructing harmful teachings and reconstructing helpful ones, godly ones. He talks about giving to those who are in need, not in performative ways, but in helpful ways. He also talks about not being performative in our spiritual practices, praying in secret, right? Not going out and praying in the street so everybody will look at us. He says those folks have already received their reward in full. He talks about praying for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven and tons of other amazing things. It's it's an incredible sermon. 
For three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus preaches. And then the sermon ends. And Jesus sets off to put all of those things he was just preaching about into practice. See, Jesus didn't just talk about it. Jesus was about it. So we pick it up. Matthew 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, if you know much about Jesus, you can probably guess what happened next. Matthew 8, 2. Jesus reached out and touched him and said, I am willing. He said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Now, what's cool about this passage is it wasn't just physical healing for this man. You see, leprosy in this society meant death culturally, too. So he would have been considered unclean and thus unable to interact with anyone else, even probably to walk through certain parts of town. Jesus heals the leprosy, but he also heals the societal outcastedness of this person, reinstates him as a full member of the community. And this is just the beginning. Over the next two chapters, y'all, Jesus heals dozens more people, raises a girl from the dead, forgives sins, casts demons out of two guys, calms a storm, and saves the lives of everyone caught in it out on a boat, parties with outcasts and notorious sinners, and makes religious leaders mad, and more and more. Talk about putting your money where your mouth is, right? Jesus preached about it, and then he went out and did it. And after Jesus does all those things, we come to our passage at the end of Matthew 9. We're going to start in verse 35. The verses will also be on the screen if you want to follow along. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So why did Jesus heal people and forgive sins and welcome the outcast and raise the dead and calm storms and stop to help absolutely everyone he encountered? It says it right there. Because he had compassion on them. Because he loved them. Because they needed help. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, plants without a gardener. The posture of compassionate tenderness, it drove everything Jesus did. We see it again when Jesus sees a widow who has lost her son. This is Luke 7. Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, he was moved with compassion toward her and said, don't cry. Then he went up. I love that the first thing he says is don't cry. Right? Like she has this incredible real need of her child has died and he's about to deal with that. But the first thing he deals with is that she is in emotional pain. She's been traumatized, right? He meets her right there. Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin. They were carrying him on and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to walk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. It happens again when Jesus sees that people are hungry. Matthew 15. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I am moved with compassion for this crowd 
because they have already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry that they may faint along the way. So he provides them food. It happens again when he meets two blind men, Matthew 20, moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and at once they received their sight and followed him. I could keep on going because at least a dozen times in the gospel accounts of Jesus, he is described as being moved by compassion towards someone in need. Jesus' entire life, death, and resurrection were motivated by his compassion, his tenderness, and his love for you and for me and for all of humanity. That's what Ephesians 2 says. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. This truth is echoed again in the most famous passage in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The Jesuit priest, Father Greg Boyle, calls Jesus tenderness in the flesh. I love that. I think he's right. God became human not to condemn us, but to tend to us, to help us, to save us. And he did it all while embodying this posture of tenderness. I saw a tweet the other day that said, if God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn it, I doubt he sent you. You ever see something like that on social media and be like, God, I should have come up with that. That is very good. But in all seriousness, right, it's true. If Jesus didn't embody a posture of condemnation, then neither should we. Conversely, since Jesus did embody a posture of tenderness, so should we. So back to our story. Jesus sends out his followers, right, not to harvest people, but to tend to them. And this is the call of both those who were with him that day in that moment and every other Christian throughout history, including all of us today. So what does that actually look like? What are some practical steps we can take to embody a posture of tenderness like Jesus did? Well, I think it looks like making three shifts, okay? Three shifts in how we interact with others. Here's the first one. The first shift, moving from pronouncements to proximity. From pronouncements to proximity. We live in a cultural moment that constantly demands pronouncements from us. We are constantly pressured to speak or post about everything that goes on in the world, clearly define our position on every pressing issue. Now, listen, I'm obviously not saying you shouldn't use your voice to call for justice. I believe that's a huge part of what it means to follow Jesus, but it is incomplete. It is incomplete. If all you do is post about poverty, but you never work to alleviate it, that's incomplete. If all I do is preach about oppression, but never work to end it, that's incomplete. Additionally, only ever talking about things without being near to them tends to breed bitterness and jadedness in us. You've experienced this, right? If all we do is post and doom scroll, post and doom scroll, we will never embody a posture of tenderness like Jesus. 
I was talking to a friend recently whose teenage son had just come out of the closet. He and his wife were supportive and they were loving, but they were worried about the grandparents' reaction. So after some deliberation, the son decided to call his grandparents and tell them. He goes into his room, makes the call, and then comes back out a few minutes later. And my friend asks his son how it went. The son says, you know, it was good. They were really kind and supportive. Whew. You know, my friend breathes a sigh of relief. Best case scenario. But then, about an hour later, my friend gets a call from his dad, the boy's grandfather, who he talked to on the phone. My friend answers the phone hesitantly. And the grandfather said, hey, we just talked to your son. He told us he's gay. Long pause. <laughs> my friend says, okay, how'd, how'd that conversation go? The grandfather replies, it went okay, but I think we're going to fly him out here to spend some more time with us that's okay with you. And my friend is understandably a little caught off guard, a little concerned, right? And so he asks, why does he need to spend time with y'all? What's the purpose of this trip? And the grandfather says, because we really want him to know how much we love and support him. We told him that on the phone, but with something this significant in his life, we just want to show him up close. We want to give him hugs and cook him dinner and tangibly let him know just how loved and supported he really is. That is a posture of tenderness. Because tenderness happens up close. Tenderness happens in proximity. Pronouncements are good, but they're incomplete. Tenderness happens in proximity. That's the first shift. The second shift I think we must make is from condemnation to curiosity. From condemnation to curiosity. Did you know that in the parts of Jesus' life that we have recorded, in Matthew that we've been looking at, but also Mark, Luke, and John, all the Gospels, that Jesus was asked 183 different questions. Do you know how many he answered directly? Three. 183 questions, he answered three directly. But not only that, when Jesus is asked a question, he almost always responds with questions of his own. So if you combine the other questions that Jesus asked in Scripture with all the ones we were just talking about, you get 307 questions. So if you're keeping track, 307 questions asked, 183 questions received, three answers given. My friends, Jesus was curious Jesus asked questions. Jesus listened. And his curiosity was a core part of his posture of tenderness. But see, if you want to love people like Jesus did, you have to listen to them. And I don't just mean waiting until they're done talking so that you can talk. Waiting until they've made their point so that you can make your point. I mean actually listening. I mean asking them about their story. And when they finish sharing them, asking a question. And then asking another question. We must choose to be curious instead of constantly judgmental, especially when it's something or someone that we don't really understand. Right? Curiosity. Greg Boyle says, being tender is to tend to people, to land on the love that does not judge. Practically, this looks like shifting from questions like, what's wrong with you? To questions like, what happened? From, let me tell you why you're wrong, to, can you tell me more about that? Everyone has a story. And when we are curious enough to understand where people are coming from and what they've been through, 
We will feel our tenderness toward them start to grow. We will naturally start to embody this posture of compassionate tenderness that Jesus embodied. The third and final shift, as I've already talked about a little bit, is from saving people to sacrificially loving them from saving people to sacrificially loving them. Lindsay Contreras, our, our new executive pastor that we introduced recently, she brought a Mr. Rogers daily calendar into the office last week. Man, I love Fred Rogers, like, so much. He's been such an incredible influence on my life, especially when it comes to this posture of tenderness, right? Like, I don't know anybody who embodied a, pu- a public posture of tenderness more beautifully and earnestly than Fred Rogers, And regarding the shift from saving people to sacrificially loving them, Fred says, to love someone is to strive to accept that person exactly the way he or she is, right here and now. And to go on caring even through times that may bring us pain. I don't think anyone can grow unless he's loved exactly as he is now, appreciated for what he is rather than what he will be. And this is the way that God loves us, right? This is the way Jesus loved people during his time on earth. During our year of healing and wholeness that we've been in, we've said repeatedly that we pursue fullness of life from the love and acceptance that God provides. Not for the love and acceptance we hope he might provide someday. Because God loves us, not some idealized version of us that might come in the future, but God loves us fully right now and desires for each of us to experience the abundant life that Jesus promises. This is God's posture toward humanity. This was Jesus's posture toward everyone he encountered. And my friends, it must be our posture too. It is not our job to save people. None of us have the power to do that anyway. Our job is to sacrificially love people, to tend to them. Proximity, curiosity, sacrificial love, these are few of the markers of a Christ-like posture of tenderness. But before I wrap up, I want to ask you all one more question. What do you think it would look like if Christians became known primarily for having a posture of tenderness. I want us to take a second, really imagine this. So this is where I need an answer from you. In our culture, what are some things that Christians are known for? Judgment. Oh, that was a, a quick one. A lot of people said judgment at the same time. Judgment. Yeah. Yep. Do those things describe Jesus? If those things don't describe Jesus, then they should not describe followers of Jesus either. Right? That seems really basic. I know it's not realistic for us to undo centuries of Christian inflicted pain all by ourselves. I know that. But what if you, what if I, gave the people we know a different picture of what a Christian could be. So when they see a Christian pastor on TV grifting for money, they think, but my friend is a Christian too. And they are so honest and trustworthy and generous. So I guess all Christians aren't grifters. 
So the next time a Christian yells at them online, they think, but my friend is a Christian too. And they are so kind. So I guess Christians aren't all mean. Or the next time they read a Christian social media post that's sexist or racist or or homophobic and they think, but my friend is Christian too. And they love everybody. They fight against marginalization. So I guess all Christians aren't hateful or judgmental or exclusive or segregationist. If we were able to show up with Christ-like postures and give people a different picture of Christianity, one much more like Jesus than they are used to, I think the, I think the world would change. I'm not even joking. I'm not even being hyperbolic. I think everything would change. This is what I want for my life, and this is what I want for our community here at Restore, to be people marked by Christ-like postures of tenderness and love and humility and inclusion and faith and discernment and courage and joy. That when people in our city think of Restore, they think, those are those people who help people. That's that place where anybody's welcome. Those are the folks that give of their time and their energy and their resources, not to build up their own thing, but to help folks who are in need. That's that church that tends to people. That's that church that sacrificially loves people. And I know y'all want that too. So let's make these shifts. Pronouncements to proximity from condemnation to curiosity from saving people to sacrificially loving them because I believe that when we do, we are shifting away from postures that disparage the way of Jesus to postures that embody it. And I believe Jesus will use these postures to change our lives, our communities, and the world. So let's do it. Let me pray. Lord God, You are so good. You have tended to me and to us with such incredible tenderness. Your compassionate love for us and for humanity knows no bounds. We are so incredibly grateful that you are who you say that you are. That when you put on flesh and came to earth as Jesus, that you embodied these wonderful, beautiful, incredible things. God, and in a world where sometimes it feels like so many Christians don't look like you, I pray that we would be people who look like you. That we would be little Christs walking around with postures of tenderness and compassion and love and joy and courage and humility and inclusion, that we would be people known by those postures. We know that you have given us your spirit, empowered us to do that. So I pray that we would lean on you, depend on you, moment by moment, and that you would do these things in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.